0: Hello and welcome to City's First Quarter 2021 Earnings Review with Chief Executive Officer Jane Fraser and Chief Financial Officer Mark Mason. Today's call will be hosted by Elizabeth Lynn, Head of City Investor Relations. We ask that you please hold all questions until the completion of the former remarks, at which time you will be given instructions for the question and answer session. Also, as a reminder, this conference is being recorded today. If you have any objections, please disconnect at this time. Ms. Lynn, you may begin.
1: Thank you, operator. Good morning, and thank you all for joining us. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you that today's presentation, which is available for download on our website, citygroup.com, may contain forward-looking statements, which are based on management's current expectations and are subject to uncertainty and changes in circumstances. Actual results, capital, and other financial conditions may differ materially from these statements due to a variety of factors, including the cautionary statements referenced in our discussion today, and those included in our SEC filings, including, without limitation, the risk factor section of our 2020 Form 10 k With that said, let me turn it over to James.
2: Thank you, Liz, and good morning to everyone. I am delighted to join you for my first earnings call as the City CEO. Mark and I have a lot to cover today, so let's get cracking. Earlier today, we announced our earnings for the first quarter, as well as the initial strategic actions we're taking in our global consumer bank to focus on our competitive advantages and to improve our returns to our shareholders. I'll start with some observations, therefore, on the first quarter, and then – I'll update you on the ongoing work on our strategy. It's been a much better than expected start of the year, and we are optimistic about the recovery ahead of us, and we're positioning the bank for a period of sustained growth. For the quarter, we reported earnings of $3.62 per share on net income of $7.9 billion. This was a record quarter in net income, driven by good performance in our institutional business and a release of $3.9 billion from our allowance for credit losses as a result of the improving economic outlook. In the institutional clients group, our markets businesses benefited yet again from an active environment. We saw solid performance in fixed income after a very strong first quarter last year and a record quarter in equities we also had a record quarter in investment banking reflecting high levels of activity in equity underwriting treasury and trade solutions which are the backbone of our global network grew deposits even though revenues continued to be impacted by low interest rates global consumer banking revenues were down quarter over quarter as a result of the pandemic however We clearly see a recovery taking root in Asia as well as the US, and that was reflected in our ACL release. And I'd note, this is the healthiest we have seen the consumer emerge from a crisis in recent history, driven in large part by the US government stimulus package. Now, while loan demand was down, we did see strong growth in wealth management and in digital engagement, both of which are central to the consumer franchise we are building. And our capital levels remain strong and stable, allowing us to respond to the needs of our clients and to return capital to our shareholders. At 11.7%, our common equity tier one ratio is unchanged from the fourth quarter and we resumed the repurchase of common stock, which we voluntarily paused at the onset of the pandemic. Our tangible book value increased to $75.50, up 5% from a year ago. Now, turning to our strategy. When we spoke in January, I pointed to four principles which we're using to guide the refresh of our strategy. First, we said we will be clinical in assessing which businesses we can retain or secure leading market positions in. Next, we're going to be focused by directing resources to high returning businesses and away from the others. Third, we're going to be connected, so we ensure our businesses fit well together and that they generate synergies. And last, we're going to be simpler, to better serve our clients, fulfill our obligations to our regulators, and unlock value for our shareholders. We also committed to take the strategic decisions needed the best positioned city to win and to close the gap in returns with our competitors. And we committed to share these decisions with you as we made them. And that's what we're doing again today. Now I spoke in January about our new focus on wealth. We believe we're very well positioned to capture strong growth and attractive returns in this business, particularly in Asia and the US. Today, Wealth at City represents roughly six and a half billion dollars in revenues, with three quarters of a trillion dollars of client assets. And there's many synergies with our markets, BCMA, and commercial banking franchises across our global network. Yesterday we announced a management team for City Global Wealth, and the work and investments are well underway on the business strategy and growth plans. And today, we announced our decision to focus our consumer banking franchise in Asia and EMEA solely on four wealth centers, namely Singapore, Hong Kong, UAE, and London. This positions us to capture the full spectrum of the wealth opportunity through these important hubs where we can serve onshore and offshore clients. And in Asia, This will allow us to continue operating our leading consumer businesses in Singapore and Hong Kong, which are both scaled and very high-returning. We will therefore pursue exits of our consumer businesses in the remaining 13 markets in Asia and EMEA. Now, while these are excellent franchises, we don't have the scale we need to compete, and we've decided we simply aren't the best owners of them over the long term. So consistent with the principles we outlined for the strategy refresh, we believe our capital, our investment dollars, and our other resources are better redeployed against higher returning opportunities elsewhere. What does this mean? This means that global consumer banking will consist of two scale franchises in the US and Mexico and these four hubs serving 100 million customers in total. Let me be very clear on one very important point. Citi will continue to invest behind and serve our institutional clients in these 13 markets. We have a high-returning and leading institutional franchise in Asia, and it is an absolutely central part of our success going forward. And we see important opportunities to invest and gain share with our institutional clients region-wide. Indeed, I saw from my own experience in Latin America, how the institutional businesses in each market really benefited from the increased focus once we had exited our subscale consumer franchises and simplified the operating model in the region. I fully expect the same will be true in Asia. And in the meantime, The comprehensive work on our strategy refresh continues. We will continue to share the decisions we make with you as we work to close the gap in returns with our peers. In parallel, we are, of course, hard at work on our transformation. We're making our next submission to the OCC this quarter, and it's a massive body of work. We continue to work closely with our regulators to meet their expectations, and we expect to submit our complete plan to both regulators no later than the third quarter. We've identified the end states, performed the gap analyses, and are currently working through the detailed resourcing and program plans and interdependencies, and we've begun execution on several fronts. The investments required go hand in hand with our strategy work. So for example, when we talk about simplification, we're pursuing it through changes to our operating model but also by removing manual processes and controls and make no mistake about it we want to achieve nothing less than a fundamental transformation by delivering excellence in our risk and control environment in our operations and in our service to clients so i am excited about the road ahead and i have no doubt that these investments and others that we're going to make in talent and technology are going to help us modernize the bank and position City to win. And finally, I want to update you on some of the commitments we're making in terms of ESG. Now we've prided ourselves in being a leader in many dimensions of ESG over the years. I see it as embedded in what we offer to our clients and the communities we serve around the world. And as you may know, on my first day as CEO in the beginning of March, I committed that City would reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, and we will deliver our plan on how we will do so within the next 12 months. Critical to helping our clients transition to a low carbon economy is the support we provide them through our environmental finance activities. So to that end, we're gonna extend our current environmental finance targets from 250 billion by 2025 to 500 billion dollars by 2030, and in addition, we finance other activities in support of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals outside of environmental finance. And these include our important investments in affordable housing, in healthcare, and workforce development. We are committing an additional $500 billion to these activities by 2030, making our total sustainable development goal commitment $1 trillion by 2030. And with that, I am going to turn over to Mark, and then we will both be delighted to take your questions. Mark.
3: Thank you, Jane, and good morning, everyone. Let me briefly review the results for the quarter, and then I'll go into more detail on the strategic refresh and specific actions we announced earlier today. Overall, we had a stronger than expected start to the year, driven by a constructive capital markets backdrop, as well as a benefit from the cost of credit for the quarter. For the quarter, Citigroup reported net income of $7.9 billion. Revenues declined 7% from the prior year. While we saw continued strength in investment banking and a solid markets performance, it was more than offset by the impact of lower interest rates along with lower card loans and consumer and the absence of the prior year mark to market gains on loan hedges. Expenses were up 4% year over year, reflecting continued investments in our transformation, including infrastructure supporting our risk and control environment, as well as other strategic investments partially offset by efficiency savings. Credit performance remains strong with net credit losses of $1.7 billion, more than offset by an ACL release of $3.9 billion, driven primarily by an improvement in our macroeconomic outlook, as well as lower loan balances. EPS was $3.62, and ROTCE was just over 20%. In constant dollars, end-of-period loans declined 10% year-over-year, reflecting lower spending activity in consumer, as well as higher repayments across institutional and consumer. Deposits grew 7%, reflecting consistent client engagement with both corporate and consumer clients continuing to hold higher levels of liquidity. Before I go into more detail on each business, on slide four, I'd like to cover the strategic refresh that Jane discussed earlier. Last quarter, we spoke about the significant opportunity wealth represents for Citi going forward and announced the formation of Citi Global Wealth in order to better connect assets and capabilities across the consumer and institutional franchises and to transform the way we serve clients across the wealth spectrum. We've continued the build-out of Citi Global Wealth this quarter and have provided some details on the scope of the business on the slide, with additional information on key drivers in the appendix. Citi Global Wealth represented roughly $6.6 billion in allocated annual revenues and it delivered 15% growth in investment revenues last year, driven by higher client activity and growth in client investment assets. As we continue to integrate the component businesses into a single wealth platform, we will finalize how best to implement this strategy from an organizational standpoint over the coming quarters and update you accordingly. Turning next to the actions we announced today, Given our strategic focus on global wealth management, we announced the decision to focus our global consumer banking presence in Asia and EMEA on four wealth centers. As Jane mentioned, this strategic shift will allow us to simplify our operating model while directing investments and resources to the businesses where we have competitive advantages and the scale necessary to drive higher returns over the long run. Let me describe the 13 markets where we will pursue an exit shown on the slide with added details in the appendix. Last year, these businesses contributed roughly $4 billion of revenues. And while historically profitable, like other consumer businesses, the impact of CECL weighed on full year results given the pandemic, with cost of credit nearly doubling in these markets year over year. Total assets were $82 billion as of the end of 2020, and the businesses are supported by roughly $7 billion of allocated TCE, We have a good track record of reducing expenses in similar situations. However, as noted on the slide, we are including fully allocated expenses to these markets, which could differ somewhat from the ultimate expense reductions. We will continue to manage these markets as part of the GCB franchise, but we already have relevant actions well underway. We plan to share more information with you as we make progress against these and other actions as part of our ongoing strategy refresh. Finally, I want to emphasize a point that Jane made earlier. We will continue to serve ICG clients, including our commercial banking clients, in all these markets. And more broadly, this strategic shift will allow us to focus more investments on ICG in Asia. Turning now to each business, slide 5 shows the results for the institutional clients group. We delivered a solid performance in the quarter, driven by strong execution and the constructive operating environment. For the quarter, ICG delivered EBIT of $7.7 billion, up 65% from last year. Revenues decreased 2%, reflecting the absence of mark-to-market gains on loan hedges seen last year. Excluding this, revenues were up 5%, with 9% growth in banking and 2% growth in markets and security services. Expenses increased 8%, reflecting investments in infrastructure and controls along with other strategic investments, higher compensation costs, and volume-driven growth. Credit costs were down considerably, given a $1.9 billion ACL release. The release this quarter primarily reflected improvements in the outlook for global GDP, as well as modest improvements in portfolio credit quality. As of quarter end, our overall funded reserve ratio was 1.1%, including 3.6% on the non-investment grade portion. Total net credit losses were $186 million, and ICG delivered a 25.7% return on allocated capital. Slide six shows revenues for the institutional clients group in more detail. Product revenues were up 5%, driven by record revenues in both equity underwriting and equity trading. Looking at these strong results across our overarching equities franchise, we feel good about the strategic investments we've been making, which enabled us to leverage our full-service model to better monetize the current market. On the banking side, revenues increased 9%. Treasury and trade solutions revenues were down 10% in constant dollars, as good client engagement and solid growth in deposits were more than offset by the impact of lower interest rates and lower commercial cards revenues. Despite these headwinds, we continue to see strength in our underlying business drivers, including 14% growth in average deposits in constant dollars this quarter. And over the past year, we've seen significant increases in digital adoption and penetration, as well as 7% growth in cross-border flows and 6% growth in clearing volumes. Investment banking experienced its best quarter ever with revenues up 46%, driven by equity underwriting, given our leading position in the SPAC market. Private bank revenues grew 8%, also its best quarter ever, driven by higher lending volumes and managed investments revenues. Corporate lending revenues were also up 8%, reflecting the absence of prior year marks, partially offset by lower volumes. Total markets and security services revenues increased 2% from last year. Fixed income revenues decreased 5%, reflecting a strong performance in rates and currencies last year. However, spread products revenues were up from the prior year as clients searched for yield in this low-rate environment with steady demand across flow and structured products. Equities revenues were up 26% versus last year, driven by cash equities, derivatives, and prime finance, reflecting solid client activity and favorable market conditions. And finally, in security services, revenues were up 1% on a reported basis and roughly flattened constant dollars. Here we saw good growth in fee revenues with both new and existing clients, driven by growth in deposits, assets under custody, and settlement volumes, offset by lower spreads. Turning now to the results for global consumer banking and constant dollars on slide 7. While we are still seeing the impact of the pandemic and high payment rates on revenues, consumer spending continues to improve and credit remains healthy, pointing to a recovery as we move through the year. For the quarter, GCB delivered EBIT of $2.8 billion up significantly from last year, primarily driven by improved credit costs. Revenues declined 15% as lower card balances and lower interest rates across all three regions were partially offset by continued strong deposit growth and momentum in wealth management. Expenses decreased 1% as efficiency savings and lower volume related costs were partially offset by investments. Credit costs decreased significantly, driven by an ACL reserve release in all three regions and lower net credit losses. The release this quarter primarily reflected lower volumes, as well as improvements in the macro outlook, and GCB delivered a 25% return on allocated capital. Slide eight shows the results for North American consumer in more detail. First quarter revenues were down 15% from last year, primarily driven by lower cards revenues. Branded cards revenues were down 11%, reflecting a 15% decline in average loans as clients are using the liquidity from stimulus and other relief programs to pay down debt.
4: Retail services
3: revenues were down 26%, reflecting higher partner payments as well as lower average loans. Net interest revenues were down 18% as average loans declined by 13% on higher payment rates. Higher partner payments drove the remainder of the revenue decline versus last year, reflecting the impact of lower forecasted losses And therefore higher income sharing looking more broadly at our cards businesses we're continuing to see a recovery in sales activity in branded cards total purchase sales were unchanged year over year but essential spend was up 12 percent and we're starting to see the recovery in areas like travel and dining and in retail services purchase sales grew four percent so purchase sales are improving slightly faster than our prior expectations and with the vaccine rollout, this should support a further recovery in discretionary spend. The bigger impact on loans is from the high payment rates. This is creating revenue pressure, but it's also benefiting our delinquency and loss trends. So the good news is that we're seeing the recovery in spend, which should continue, and our credit portfolio is proving to be quite resilient. We're now focused on loan and revenue recovery through driving spend activity reentering the market for new account acquisitions, and investing in lending capabilities and new value propositions. Turning to retail banking, revenues were down 8% year over year, reflecting pressure from lower deposit spreads. That said, we're continuing to see good momentum as we grow and deepen retail bank relationships, as well as improve the quality and stickiness of these relationships. Average deposits were up 22%, including 30% growth in checking and AUMs were up 32%. We're also continuing to broaden our digital capabilities to extend from deposits to wealth management to mortgage lending. As Jane mentioned, we're committed to the franchise and all of this gives us confidence in our ability to scale our US retail bank with a digitally led, client-centric approach supported by a light physical expansion in new markets over time. On slide nine, we show the results for international consumer banking and constant dollars. In Asia, revenues declined 12% year over year in the first quarter. We continue to see good momentum in wealth management as investment revenues grew 22%, with a 14% increase in City Gold clients and 13% growth in net new money. And the numbers are meaningfully higher if you look specifically at the four global wealth hubs. Average deposit growth remained strong at 13%, albeit at lower deposit spreads. Card revenues remained under pressure year over year with purchase sales down 5% and average loans down 13%, given a continued significant impact on travel in the region. However, we are seeing some signs of a recovery with the pickup in new card acquisitions and purchase sales year over year in the month of March. Turning to Latin America, total consumer revenues declined 16% year-over-year. Year. Similar to other regions, we saw good growth in deposits and assets under management in Mexico this quarter, with average balances up 9% and AUMs up 17%. However, deposit spreads remained under pressure, and lending volumes continued to decline given the macro environment. Slide 10 provides additional detail on global consumer credit trends. In the U.S., both NCL and delinquency rates remain favorable, driven by the significant amount of customer liquidity due to stimulus and other relief programs. Given the delinquency trends we're seeing today, we do not expect credit deterioration in the U.S. portfolio in 2021. And so peak losses may not occur until late 2022, depending on whether or not the stimulus results in a permanent benefit. By contrast, in both Mexico and Asia, we saw a peak in credit losses in the first quarter of 2021. This was expected, driven by the impact of customer accounts rolling off relief programs. The impact was pronounced in Mexico with a peak NCL rate of over 10%, as we saw most customers roll off the relief programs at the end of the third quarter of last year. Excluding those accounts that participated in relief programs, our credit trends in both Mexico and Asia remain stable. And you can see improvement this quarter in delinquency rates. Slide 11 shows the results for corporate other. Revenues were roughly flat in dollar terms as the impact of lower rates was offset by the absence of marks versus the prior year, as well as some episodic gains this quarter. Expenses were down 1% as investments in infrastructure, risk and controls were roughly offset by the allocation of certain costs to the businesses. This change had no impact to EBIT at the city level, and given it was immaterial, we have not reflected the change retrospectively. Credit costs declined year over year, driven by a release this quarter compared to a build in the prior year. Finally, the pre-tax loss was $231 million this quarter. Looking ahead, we would expect a quarterly pre-tax loss in the range of $500 million for the remainder of 2021, although with some variation quarter to quarter. Slide 12 shows our net interest revenue and margin trends. In constant dollars, total net interest revenue of $10.2 billion this quarter declined $1.4 billion year over year, reflecting the impact of lower rates and lower loan balances, as well as the impact of one fewer day versus last year, partially offset by slightly higher trading-related NIR. Sequentially, net interest revenue continued to stabilize, and excluding the impact of two fewer days in the quarter was roughly flat to the fourth quarter. And net interest margin declined five basis points, reflecting lower net interest revenues, partially offset by Treasury actions and balance sheet optimization. Turning to non-interest revenues, in the first quarter, non-NIR declined slightly to just over $9 billion, predominantly driven by the mark-to-market on loan hedges, offsetting strong investment banking revenues. On slide 13, we show our key capital metrics, which, as Jane mentioned, remain strong and stable again this quarter, allowing us to support clients and return capital to shareholders. Our CET1 capital ratio remained 11.7%, as net income was roughly offset by buybacks and dividends, along with the impact of OCI and an increase in risk-weighted assets. During the quarter, Citi returned a total of $2.7 billion to common shareholders in the form of $1.1 billion in dividends and share repurchases of $1.6 billion. Our supplementary leverage ratio was 7%, and our tangible book value per share grew by 5%, to $75.50 driven by net income. Before we move to Q&A, let me spend a few minutes on our outlook for 2021. First, our full year top line outlook has improved since last quarter. At that time, coming off the performance of 2020, we had expected industry wallets to return closer to the 2019 levels this year. Given a strong start to the year, as well as the increasingly positive signs of a recovery ahead, We now believe wallets will be somewhat higher relative to 2019. Meanwhile, our outlook for net interest revenues is unchanged, and we continue to expect a decline in net interest revenues of somewhere between $1 to $2 billion, with stabilization continuing into the second quarter and an improvement in the back half. Taken together, this suggests revenues down in the mid-single-digit range, better than our prior guidance for a mid- to high-single-digit range decline. Second, on the expense side, we continue to expect full year expenses to increase in the range of two to 3%, mostly driven by investments related to our transformation agenda. In addition, we could also see some episodic impacts this year related to the market exits we are pursuing. And as I mentioned earlier, we will be very transparent about the impact of these actions on our financials. Finally, on cost of credit, we continue to have an overall favorable outlook with regard to credit performance. And depending on the macroeconomic outlook, we could see further reserve releases, although given the size of the reserve release this quarter, we would not expect to see the same magnitude of ACR release going forward. With that, Jane and I are happy to take any questions.
0: At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. Again, that's star one. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. Please limit your questions to one question and one follow-up. Please hold while we compile the Q&A roster. Your first question is from the line of John McDonald with Autonomous Research.
5: Thank you. Jane, I wanted to ask you uh, a bit of a strategic question, just for some more color on this idea that the investments you're making in the risk and controls will also help
3: advance your goal of modernizing cities' technology for the benefit of customers. Could you elaborate on that a little bit, and, and maybe give us some examples of where you've seen technology gaps as you've done uh, your listening tour across the company?
2: Hey, thank you very much, John. Um, so, it. it it's fascinating at the moment. I, I have a chance to go and talk to the CEOs of banks um who are our clients all around the world and all of us talk about the same thing, which is there's a major transformation that's going on, a digital transformation in the in the industry. <clears throat> and so as we look at the consent order and the transformation, the transformation we're going through is much is much broader than just the, the consent orders, although they're obviously a very critical component of it. Um, and so, as we look at the um, as we look at the investments we're making, I, I I look at the ones that we're making in our infrastructure, in our data, um, as uh, as very much linked into a, a strategic need, as well as what's being required uh, and asked of us from the uh, from the consent orders. So, you know, I gave you one of the examples just uh, you know earlier. Um, but data data would be an obvious example of this, where you know investment that we make in the quality of our data will have a big impact for our shareholders in terms of driving revenues and improving a client experience in making faster decision making on risk or on business decisions um, as well as making sure that the data that we do have is properly governed um and uh you know from a safety and soundness perspective, so ma- many of the investments we've got at the moment are really the um the strategy and transformation work coming together um as it is for many banks.
3: okay, and then a quick follow up on that from Mark. Mark, how should investors think about the multi-year cost of this transformation? Obviously, you've given us some sense of what's embedded uh, to get to your expense guidance for this year of up two to three percent. But is this something that does get spread out over multiple years? It doesn't sound like an easy or a, you know a quick project. Yeah. Thanks, John. Um, you know, as as Jane has referenced, it is, and I've mentioned referenced in the past, it is a multi-year effort And we've been working, you know very diligently on uh, identifying the gaps that that we have and identifying the root causes. And as Jane has mentioned, we're you know working very aggressively on constructing the plans to to move towards more comprehensive execution. Uh, but those plans have to come together and and we're still working through that. And as you've mentioned, you know I've been very clear um as the as we develop the information as to what we can expect in the way of headwinds that two to three percent this year, the billion dollars in the prior year and as we um as we bring those plans together, I'll continue to share openly what our best estimates are for how the expenses continue to uh to evolve. What I would say, John, is that um i and I say this a lot i guess these these are investments. Um, As Jane mentioned, there are benefits that we expect from them. The data was a great example as to how we leverage that with our clients, but also how getting that quality data in um, and not having to rework it and reconcile it, et cetera, et cetera, saves us on the operating cost as well. And I highlight that because as we make more investments, we will undoubtedly continue to seek out productivity opportunities uh, that that move to offset those.
0: Your next question is from the line of Glenn Shore with Evacore ISI.
6: Hi, thanks Go very ahead. much.
0: Um,
6: I, I guess I guess a, a, a simple one that's probably not so simple to answer is, is if there's not this there's not a huge revenue or earnings impact from divesting. Uh, the, the 13 markets, but there is a lot of, like, resources and bandwidth freed up. I guess my question is, what do you do with the capital? Um, just conceptually, meaning everyone's been, uh, you know, looking to you for a huge capital return story, which you which you are. Um, but, but putting the consent to order aside, how do you think about using that capital offensively to augment the businesses that you're, uh, you know, doubling down on?
3: Sure. Look, I think this is um, one of the reasons why it's so important that we're doing the refresh that Jane has described. Um, it allows us to, to very clearly focus on the parts of the franchise where we think we have a significant competitive advantage. And as Jane has mentioned, those are going to be the parts of the franchise where we um, allocate more resources, both in the way of you know expense dollars and investments, but also in the way of capital allocation, so that we can capture the growth that we see with, uh, you know, with client opportunities there. Um, And after that, after kind of ensuring that we're capturing those opportunities that deliver returns uh, that are consistent with our objective of narrowing the gap to peers, you know, then we want to obviously return excess capital to, uh, to shareholders as, as we've, uh, as we've been doing. So that, that's the way we think about it. First, let's lead with what is the strategy? Second, let's make sure that strategy is rooted in growth opportunities and commensurate returns that make sense for us. Let's allocate capital there to take advantage of that, and then what's left, let's return it to shareholders.
2: Yeah, and I, I, I would just jump in on this one as well. I mean, you know, I've been on a great listening tour with our investors um, and hearing their perspectives, and uh, I'm very clear around our priorities, which is closing the return gap with our with our, um peers, uh, making sure that we put a strategy in place um, that that, uh, has the investment profile um, as well as the different actions to do so. And as Mark said, um, this is our number one priority.
6: Um, I appreciate that. I'd love to follow up on just one piece. So uh, on that front, wealth is definitely something that fits a high return profile. You mentioned you're doubling down. I'd love to Discussed um, as a combined entity, you know what metrics do you think we'll be looking at to determine success? Like, what are the important linkages with the other businesses that um, can be maximized better? Uh, you know, what systems and product platforms you need to add to to get to these higher aspirations? Thanks.
2: Uh- um, you'd better be careful because I could talk for hours on this one. Um I, I think we're incredibly well positioned in wealth. Um uh, Mike gave you um Mark gave you some of the visibility into the size and scale of the business today. Um when when I look at it, we've got um we've got a phenomenal brand name, um, an aspirational one um in the wealth space, particularly in Asia but around the world. Uh, we have our commercial bank. Uh, which operates in 30 different geographies uh, you know, around the world and is where a lot of the wealth is being created. So we have relationships and are helping with the actual wealth generation and source of wealth um, for many of our clients, as well as obviously in ICG. We've got a top-tier institutional platform and capability um, and, uh, you, know, we've got, uh, you know, we've got our presence uh, very well established in these major wealth hubs uh, around the world. So I, I do feel we're incredibly well positioned when we can bring these different assets and capabilities into a single platform. So the investments that we've already begun making is putting a single um, wealth platform organization in place. We made the announcement yesterday around the leadership. You'd have seen that. Uh, We've started investing in uh, growing our relationship managers and FAs around the world um, and uh, really bringing together the best of the firm. And I expect as we work on the technology plan, we'll have some different tech stack lined up against that, too. So, um, Jim O'Donnell putting the plans together right now, um, but we see this as a tremendous a tremendous opportunity, and you'll be able to measure us and hold us to account for this in terms of the returns that we generate, the growth in the fee income, uh, and continuing to steadily capture share in the years ahead.
0: Your next question is from the line of Erica Najarian with Bank of America.
1: Hi, good morning.
0: Good morning.
1: Uh, just a yes just to follow up on 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 glenn's question um so jane you mentioned in your prepared remarks that you were now refocusing on consumer businesses where you have scale and that's the u.s and mexico and i guess we're wondering i'm sure you're still in the middle of your strategic review what is your vision for the city consumer franchise in the u.s and as we move past a world where hopefully your multiple is more reflective of um You know your ROE potential um, and your past the consent order. Would you entertain inorganic opportunities uh, for market share growth in the United States?
2: Um, Erica, great, great question, Um, and certainly well, one I have heard loud and clear from many of our investors as well as we've been talking with them. Um, Look, the U.S. is our home market. Um, We have to get it right. Um, It's a great franchise in terms of brand, Um, the client base that we have around the country. We certainly see upside potential in wealth, as we've been talking about. We have a a large cards business where the pandemic has accelerated the cross-sale of our broader banking proposition. And I think the broader theme of digitization, um, we have very high-quality clients in and out of footprint, and they've been very digitally engaged, and that's only increased. Um, 50% 50 of the new accounts this quarter in the retail bank were were acquired digitally, and about 75% of our clients, for example, are are digitally engaged already. Um, And we have tremendous partnerships. So I think we've got got, um, terrific assets and building blocks. But as you said, the work is going on right now on the strategy refresh, um, and we're looking forward to coming back to you um, in in reasonably short order when we've done the work and have the plan on uh, what what actions we will take. Um, We're looking longer run um, and, uh, you know, for now, partnerships are going to be very important. But uh, you know, we'd love to do inorganic moves if they make sense for our shareholders and for us further down the line. But at the moment, we'll focus on partnerships.
1: Thank you for that. And my second question is with Mark. If, if this probably partially how you laid out guidance probably partially answers this question. But investors seem to believe that there could be upside uh, to revenue for banks, whether it's you know continued expansion of wallets in your ICG business or you know in more traditional NIR sources. And, and I'm wondering it's a two part question. One, you know, if we get a better revenue um, from here, could you still achieve the the two to three percent um, expense target? Um, and as a follow up, on the expenses that would be carved out from those exits, we heard from one of your peers that you know if you exclude overhead um or you know expenses allocated um to businesses exited we would see a net a sort of a net expense save of about 75 to 80% of identified expenses and i'm wondering if if that's the right ratio to think about those 13 markets that you're exiting
3: Sure thank you um so the first thing just in terms of revenue i did speak to this in the guidance and um what i referenced was um, you know, I, I talked about in the last quarter um the normalization of the market's wallets. Uh and uh what we're seeing just at the on start of this year and the strong start that Jane referenced is that uh while I do expect there'll be some normalization, I would expect at this point that the market wallets will be above the two thousand nineteen levels. Uh and so we, we do think that um you know that presents uh, some upside um, I talked about the and that that's what kind of feeds in part the down mid single-digit guidance that I gave for total revenues um, you're right with the steepening of the, of the curve uh, that does present um, you know some opportunities um, we've got dry powder to put you know to put liquidity uh, to work um, and we've done some of that but we have you know more dry powder to do that mm-hmm. um, with that mm-hmm. said as I mentioned earlier we are seeing higher payment rates um, you know, from the consumer business that offsets um, some of that potential upside. And I did describe veneer uh, in the way of a range, down $1 to $2 billion. And so uh, that range gives you some sense for uh, the ability or the opportunity if we were to capture more of that upside. Um, in terms of the expenses, um, uh, two things. One, you mentioned relative to to revenues. Um, And the the answer is that, um, you know, if wallets continue to perform even stronger um, or the recovery is even more significant on the the lending side or consumer side or ICG side for that matter, then that will come with higher expenses, um, transaction expenses, compensation expenses. But I think everyone would agree that that would be good cholesterol. Um, And, um, you know, so we'll see how that plays out. Um, Obviously, I did mention uh, episodic costs associated with the exits. What I'd say about that is, um, and and your point around allocations, both Jane and I um, have deep experience um, at this. Um, I have experience from City Holdings and both being part of that team and ultimately running City Holdings. Jane has run Latin America. Both of those parts of the franchise historically have exited countries, and we have both been keenly focused on ensuring that we get as much of the stranded cost associated with exits out of the organization in the past, and you can rest assured that that would be the same type of focus we'd put to these exits. Um, so so that's kind of the view there. I don't have a ratio that I'd want to share at this point, but please, you know, please know that that will be a focal point for us uh, in order to ensure that we get the most value out of this decision.
0: As a reminder, Please limit your questions to one question and one related follow-up. Your next question is from the line of Matt O'Connor with Deutsche Bank.
7: Uh, Good morning. Um, I know this is a tough question to answer, but as we think about the timing of the consent orders, should we think about um, the ones that came out in October of last year as essentially restarting the clock or since some of them have been going on for uh, several years and the Fed and OCC acknowledge that you've made progress, you know, maybe don't think about it as a reset in the clock. And and, and the reason I'm asking is, you know, if we look at other consent orders in the industry, it, it tends to take several years, you know, three, four, five years. Um, and it's it's a little bit trickier with you guys because, again, it's it's not like you're starting from scratch, Um but I was wondering if there's anything you could comment uh, with respect to the timing and, and how I frame that.
3: Yeah, sure, sure. Why don't I why don't I start and then Jane, you may have some some thoughts on it as, as well. Um yeah. you know what I'd say is you, you know, look, this is um, you know, the, the consent order um, you know, was clear in, in, in its way of directives and areas that we need to focus. As Jane has described, you know, we're we're looking at this frankly a little bit broader. Uh we're looking at this as a as a transformation. Um, and it will take uh, – you know, it is a multi-year effort that is underway here. Yes, there are some things that you heard us reference that we had started even before the order. There were a number of remediation efforts that were underway um, in, in some of the areas that are referenced in the order. We're leveraging the work that we had started already. But candidly, what's different about this transformation versus a remediation is that we're looking at this end-to-end. As opposed to a very you know narrow or silo or tactical approach to an issue that's identified and in order to do that you do have to pause for a second take a step back and look at things on the front end of a process where things come into our systems and understand how you can improve those processes the technology that support them the governance around that I highlight that because your answer is a. T- your question is a tough question. There's some of it that we will keep accelerating, but we want to make sure that we do that in the broader context so that we get it right, and and that that's what's really important to us. Jane, anything you want to add to that?
2: I no, I think I think you said it very well, Mark. Um, it- remediation is tactical Transform- transformation is more strategic um and and much more fundamental um and uh, you know that's what we're doing we take a, a soup to nuts approach we're looking at the target states we want to get to making sure that uh, you know we've got real excellence um in what we do um uh, and uh, that that is that is the focus so we're looking oh, forward rather than looking backwards Um,
7: And then just to follow up there, like, isn't the reality that you need to kind of fix the regulatory issues so that you can accomplish some of the things that you want in the transformation, right? Because I think your ability to do deals, ability to open branches, there's just a lot of restrictions. So I think it's good to hear about, like, the long-term vision, but you kind of need to get the house in order first, right, before you can accomplish some of those things? Or can you do both at the same time?
2: Oh, you can you absolutely do both at the same time. And that's what we're very focused on. As I say, the transformation and the, um, the work on the transformation, the strategy in many ways go hand in hand and are getting us to the same goal, which is you know, make sure we're excellent for our investors, for our clients, as well as for our uh, regulators and the safety and soundness agenda. So the, the two go very much hand in hand. Risk and controls are, are clearly important. Um, particularly in a, a digital world, um, and you know we need them to be at a very high standard to, to uh, operate as one of the world's most significant financial institutions. That's the intention, as is the intention to make sure our operations are the same. So, one and the same goal here.
3: To, to your to your point, Jane, um, you know exiting exiting these 13 countries that simplifies the organisation, right? Creating City Global Wealth and bringing. You know, what was the private bank and our wealth organization and consumer together allows for us to come up with an investment platform, a unified investment platform that simplifies the organization, makes it easier to have controls in place around those processes. So Jane is exactly right. The strategy is, is, is aligned with the transformation that's underway in many ways.
7: Okay, thank you very much.
0: Your next question is from the line of Saul Martinez with UBS.
4: Hey, good morning. Um, good morning. I have a bit of a, I have a bit of a, a hodgepodge of questions related to um, your strategic refresh. Uh, so, so first, uh, you know, c- you gave a lot of color on on the financial metrics of the 13 exit markets, um, but do you also happen to have what the reserves are? On the balance sheet that could be released over time in those um, in those countries. Um, second, time horizon. I, I know you'll you indicated Mark that you'll you'll give us more detail as it presents itself. But just any sort of, of guidance on the time horizon. Are we looking at you know quarters or is this going to play out play out over a number of years? Just any any guideposts. And then I guess thirdly, I'll just finish up. Um, maybe more importantly, Banamex, any, how, is, how are you thinking about Banamex in the context of your your strategy refresh? I mean, it certainly is not a subscale business, but, you know, Mexico does have some, some macro challenges, as you guys have highlighted, and, and a government that, you know, has very heterodox views, policy views on a whole host of things. So just any thoughts um, on how you're thinking about Banamex right now?
3: And yeah, you wanna start, and then I can piggyback back on that,
2: yeah, so um um in in terms of um why do we go, start off with timing and and uh and then i can yeah, I can um check the reserve one over to you mark so in in terms of timing, look um yeah we we're already getting going, and there's no dilly dallying here um and what we 're what we 're looking at doing is um we 've begun the work um the actions are underway in several markets um we 'll look to complete the exits in a timely fashion and we expect to be out in some markets this quarter um, equally you know, this is um we we 're going to be thoughtful about uh who the who the um the buyers are and the the, um, how we do this and the value that we create for shareholders in the process. Um, so while there is urgency on action, um, we're, we're going to make sure that this is, uh, this is uh, good moves for our shareholders um, and act appropriately. And the timing is going to be driven by regulatory approvals in different geographies. So as Mark said, you know, as we know more, we'll update you um, on the process, um, but we've been very transparent about what we're intending to do. And then in terms of Mexico, um, look, Mexico is a, um, a scaled franchise. Um, when I compare Mexico to our Asian consumer fr- um, franchises, they, they really benefit from the scale. The returns are good. Um, and there's a lot of upside potential there. The investments in digitization have really paid off. So while the country is going through a very challenging time at the moment, there's a lot to like in the franchise over the longer term. And I know we'll um, we'll give you a better sense of uh, the strategy there, um, you know, as we carry on the strategy refresh work, but a lot to like. Mark, do you want to cover yeah. the reserve? Yeah.
3: Yeah, you know, so let me just um, – I guess I'll make a couple of comments, and I, I don't think I'm going to get into a, a specific reserve number, so apologies for that. But what I will say is as you – as you see what we shared on on the page that it's roughly break even uh you know in twenty twenty, and we all recognize in twenty twenty there were significant reserves um you know established uh, in light of the pandemic. um what I'd say is if we were look at twenty nineteen uh which would have been a more normalized year, the EBIT associated with the thirteen markets. Um, you know, would have been uh, a little bit under a uh, billion dollars or so, and so it gives you some sense for how the build-in reserves, um, at least to some extent, um, has impacted. Um, you know, what the what the front financials are that we've shared here. And again, as we go through these transactions, um, you know, we'll be we'll be appropriately transparent with the impact that we see from them.
0: As a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, please limit your questions to one question and one related follow-up question. Your next question is from the line of Mike Mayo with Wells Fargo Securities.
8: Uh, hi, Jane. Um, hey, Mike. So, about about um, what are you? 45 days in the job, and you announced the asset disposition. So, I guess you're not wasting any time. Uh, as you think about these asset dispositions, or future dispositions, how do you, what lens do you use? Because you can consider returns, you can consider growth, you can consider synergies with the rest of the firm, or you could potentially consider regulatory benefits as it relates to the consent order, you know, do you get credit for simplifying, and less systems to, uh, to resolve, or what other measures do you use? I, I note that the uh, it looks like the uh, exit of the thirteen consumer markets uh those were capital hogs, uh so I can't imagine the returns were very good, but there's a lot of parameters you can look at. What lens do you use
2: um so interesting question mike um and I, frankly, I look at it in terms of what we want to be, not what we don't, because what you don't want to be kind of falls out of um falls out of it pretty easily. So the main consideration we have is how do we close the return gap um, with our peers and make sure that the businesses we're in that can win? And we're very disciplined about going back to those principles I laid out at the very beginning um, and we talked about back in January. We've been using this um, consistently in the strategy refresh work. So the first thing we're looking at is, is this sector or is this client segment or is this business? You know, does it have attractive dynamics as we look out over the medium and long term? Um, and importantly, within those dynamics, can, you know, can we win? Does this make? Can we be well positioned in this? Um, and I think you know, we're certainly seeing in, in the world of financial services today that scale is obviously a very important consideration. Um, So the corollary of that is if you don't have scale, that's usually a disadvantage. We look at it in terms of connectivity, and it's very, very important that we have synergies across our um, major platforms um, and our client segments. Um, And, you know, you'll hear us talking about that a lot more going forward and what are some of the metrics that we'll look at um, to demonstrate that we're really capturing those synergies. We look at fees and returns. Um, so, therefore, you know, if it's a, if it's capital, is it generating returns? Are we getting the growth? Um, you know, we're deficient on the fee gen- um, re- revenues relative to what Mark and I would like to be, so that becomes a consideration. And then does it really fit with the strategic identity that we have for city and we're work- working on as part of the refresh? If it's yes, then this is a candidate for investment. you're um, laying out what the strategy is. If it's not, it's the opposite. Um, and, you know, dispositions, we're always going to take into time, into consideration timing. As I said, in the last question, you know, there's no fire sales here. We're we going to be thoughtful on how we ensure we generate value for shareholders on the exit, at the potential value of partnerships um, with with the potential buyers, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, how best can we monetize and, and generate value as we do this? And um, so um, in, in many ways, it's a little bit of all of the above on your list, but we kind of, we start in the opposite place, if you know what I mean. What are we going to be? And then, uh, you know, focus on making sure that we generate the greatest value from that. And the other decisions kind of fall out of it pretty quickly. And um, I think you can see that being demonstrated in the, um, in the decisions we made on both why wealth and the hubs that we're going, we're investing in. In Asia and Amia, um, but then equally the uh, the other decisions on the the, the remaining set thirteen markets on consumer being the exit. And then one follow up,
8: um, it is early, um, but do you have a sense of what sort of return you'd ultimately like to achieve, um, and ultimately what is the identity that you would like to have for Citigroup? Who who is Citigroup? You know, what's your uh, yeah yeah. You know, what's your elevator, you know, summary, elevator pitch? City
2: Group, City group is fabulous, Mike. Um, you know, when, again, when I go back to what what have our investors been talking to me about, um, you know, as, a, as we've been going around and, and listening to them, they want us to have um you know they want us to have close a gap of the the um returns with our peers. um I think Mark's given some indication you know as we see a more normal when we see a normalized rate environment, we get the strategy there you know a a you know a, a mid tier range seems reasonable, but um I would certainly add in, let us do the work um because I want to make sure that we have a very thoughtful strategy um and we've got clarity around it. And when you ask us about um, you know what is what is City going to be, we'll be back to you with um, again a lot more precision and clarity around it. But I think you can see from some of the moves that we've got, we want to be uh, you know we we really want to be excellent, Um, and that's not just in terms of how we serve um, our clients, many of whom are very have global needs. And there's a lot of consistency around that. Um, but also, uh, I would say what city is, I want the word excellent to be one that is used about us in our operations, in our culture, um, in our accountability, um, and in what we do. And so that's the word you'll, you'll hear from me a lot, and that's the standard I'm holding myself and the firm to.
0: Your next question is from the line of Stephen Schubach with Rolf Research.
9: Hi, good morning. Morning. So wanted to start off with a, a question just looking at the strategic actions that you guys had taken, if I think back to 2014, right? And what was outlined then, Jane, was actually pretty similar in terms of the profitability profile of the businesses that you were exiting, the capital benefits that were ultimately going to be reaped, And it was at least difficult to see some of those benefits if I look at how the profitability profile has changed. So I guess from your point of view, having been at the firm when that was undertaken, what what lessons did you learn from that process? And are there any differences in the approach that you might take this go around to potentially drive uh, maybe more conspicuous or clear benefits to the bottom line?
2: Um, so sorry, just in terms of, I just want to make sure I'm understanding the question you're asking it in terms of the benefits of uh, digitization?
9: Not even digitization, just the um, if I think back to the exits yeah. that there were strategic yeah. actions that you had pursued in twenty fourteen, you know, exiting uh, um yeah. a handful of markets, uh you know, to try to optimize that global consumer footprint. And it was very similar in terms of the disclosure around the exit markets were barely profitable. There were capital benefits that were going to be reaped, but ultimately we didn't see yeah. those benefits at least translate into bottom line impacts. And I'm curious if you could just speak to some of the learnings from that experience and okay, what approach you might it. take a bit differently.
2: Yeah. Um, it would, when I look at uh, the, in LATAM, um, the benefits we got were pretty tremendous. So I, I think, first of all, we were able to very much focus on our strengths in our institutional franchise, um, and we were able to make sure that we had truly world-class talent. Um, we invested in our technology and platforms. Um, we, were, we were very focused on you know that that client base of the multinationals we serve there in particular, and the uh, the investor base um, engaged in Latin America, and we drove the returns up. Um, from teenagers to mid twenties um in a pretty short period of time um we rose up the um the rankings in the in the banking side um and you know really solidified our leadership on the institutional front i'd also say we simplified the the management structure um as well in the in the region and uh Uh, and and gained uh, quite a lot of benefits from simplification um, that hit the bottom line as well. So I'd I'd say my experience has been one in which there's real benefit from focus. um, You get better at the businesses that you're in. You get strong talent. Um, and you're able to bring more focused talent. That's what's different. Um, and you get, uh, you're able to really get the linkages across the the different businesses um, and hone in on them. Mark, I don't think, don't know if you've got anything else to add because you and I are yeah. both in these journeys together.
3: Yeah, Jane, Jane, I think you captured it well. The only thing I'd, I'd emphasize in terms of kind of the what's different now as we go at this is are the last couple of points you made, which is you know, that keen focus on making sure that that you've got, that we've got the right talent in the right places as we go through this strategy refresh Um, and and ensuring that the org structure supports that. Again, I go back to the wealth example and the resetting of that org structure. You can point to the idea of moving commercial into ICG to ensure that you got that focus against that strategy and you can really capture the linkages across the firm and then the last piece is the focused investment you know we, we move, we're moving away from kind of you know a spreading of the investments and really wanting to to focus them on where we think the biggest growth opportunities are and where the highest returns are but I, I think you captured it all Jay
9: no that's great color uh, thank you both for those insights and just for my follow-up I want to ask about the TTS business you know it's a really strong franchise and, like, the underlying balance growth, you know, historically has been quite strong and relatively steady-eddy. Um, in more recent quarters, there's been some pressure. Um, it feels like a lot of that's actually NII or rate-related. But I was hoping to give some perspective on what are some of the underlying trends that you're seeing in that business. You know, what's your outlook, at least from here and now that most of the uh, rate pressures,
3: at least, should be fully absorbed or reflected in the run rate? Yeah, sure. Why don't I Why don't I start, and then uh, Jane, you can add on as as you'd like in terms of some of the client perspective. But you know, look, the revenues. You're right. were down about 10 percent um, year over year on an XFX basis, uh, and you hit it right on the head. I mean, the the, the low rate environment that we've been in. Um, is a very big driver in what we've seen in the aggregate TTS um, revenues. Now, now we have seen higher deposit volumes, uh, and that obviously plays through with, uh, you know, with that impact. Um, what I would say in terms of your broader question, you know, what we lo- what we look at is one the the engagement that we have with clients, and we have very meaningful, significant engagement with clients throughout the entire crisis that we've been managing through and that engagement kind of plays through in the increase in number of accounts, digital accounts that we've opened for them, really, you know, kind of reinforcing some of the investments that we've been making in onboarding and enhancing and in enhancing our digital capability. Um, that engagement plays through in the clearing activity and cross-border transactions. That we've seen, which are both up, you know, six and seven percent over the over the past 12 months. So good, solid underlying drivers. Um, while we do see pressure on commercial card activity, um, fee revenues ex commercial card activity, you know, has been has been good. And frankly, as we see the economy recover and we look at some of the GDP forecast and uh, and that starts to play out. We would expect to see, you know, the business, uh, you know, the business activity turn in a way that that starts to play through, uh, you know, through through the through the top line. But we see, you know, again, very very strong continued engagement, um, you know, with our clients and and with how they're evolving their own strategies. And the last example I'd mention is, you know, many of our clients with um, the acceleration of digitization, you know, are focused on business-to-consumer activity. Um, And that's an important area of growth. And and we're part of that dialogue. We're part of creating that solution as it relates to their business model uh, or business models. Um, Jane, I don't know if anything you want to add to that
2: yeah you you're going to hear quite a lot more about uh, our our t t s business and the the services platform it represents um for so many of our clients yeah. around the world um the the client in you know my discussion with clients um over the last uh last few months they love our t t s platform but more than that they depend upon it it is strategic for them um and um, the different services, the data it represents, the other dimensions of it. And so the growth that we're going to see from this is next year um, is, I, I think, it's going to be very material um, you'll hear us also talk more about the commercial bank going forward as well, because the mid mid-market clients and the born digital clients are ones who use um, use our TTS platform and the capabilities and services around it to also themselves start growing um, internationally, um, and it becomes a core part of them. So, this is. Um, is we've got more to grow with our existing clients. We've got a lot of new clients um, that are coming on board this, and and this is going to be an exciting part of the story going forward um, and the underlying opportunities here separate to the rates environment.
0: Your next question is from the line of Ken Houston with Jefferies.
5: Thanks. Hi. Good morning. Um, Jane and Mark, I was wondering if I could ask you just about you know, global recovery and, and pacing. Um, you know, as you look through the supplement, you see different growth rates when you look whether you look at loans, cards, or deposits uh, at, at different paces, and as the currency uh, translation impacts as well, of course. But just you know, how would you help us understand as you look forward to you know revenue stabilization over time? Just how do you see? the global customer base recovering in terms of pacing U.S., non-U.S. And if you can juxtapose that um, to any extent in, in, in the wholesale side, that, uh, that would be great as well. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll kick off with a, a little bit more on the macro side. Mark will jump in on um, uh, on some of the other important dimensions for ourselves. Look, it's asynchronous growth out there is what we're seeing. Um, I think you're seeing the U.S. and China certainly leading the recovery with, uh, with Asia um, Europe is is delayed um, but certainly not derailed and parts of the emerging markets are, are struggling so you do see a different picture in different parts of the world and as I think you heard from um, from me at the beginning of the call we 're pretty optimistic you know, about the um, about the u s in particular um, you know over the next few years there 's a lot of unspent savings out there with consumers, huge amounts of liquidity in the markets. Corporate balance sheets are broadly healthy. Um, And then you've also got a lot of uh, dynamism from uh, digitization that's changing consumer behaviors and, and driving investment. So, overall, you know, it's certainly a very improved outlook um around the world but it is an asynchronous one um and uh you know we're seeing as mark had talked about you know, strong pipelines a lot of client engagement a lot of client activity um but you know mark why don't i turn to you on the, yeah. how you're seeing some of this translate
3: yeah let me make a i guess i'll make a couple of comments one um you know we are seeing uh you know uh, continued pressure on our consumer business right And so we talked about Loan volumes being down, particularly in branded cards, almost 15% or 15%. Retail services average loans down, down 13%. What I would say is we are seeing, you know, signs of uh, the recovery. And, and while those loans are down, um, payment rates remain high. That helps from a cost of credit point of view. And purchase sales are starting to show some good signs. Uh, so branded cards, purchase sales were were flat year over year, the retail services purchase sales were up four percent year over year, uh and, and the outlook is is positive in terms of you know kind of GDP and, and, and unemployment. And so um there's the stimulus that's out there still has to play out uh in North America. Um but we are we are optimistic that consumer spending trends look like they're going to go favorable and that will undoubtedly help um you know the forecast that I spoke to which is Recovery in in NIR and, and some loan activity towards the back half of the year. Um, on the on the corporate ICG side, um, you know, similarly, uh, we're certainly seeing you know good signs as it relates to the market's activity. We've talked about that and that's continued since uh, last year. But when I think about even ICG uh, loans, we've seen you know loan activity in the private bank. Uh, we've seen uh, loan activity. You know, in parts of markets, um, and and so those are good and loan activity as relates to trade, uh, which is which are all good signs of, uh, of of the recovery that we're all we're all marching
5: towards. Yeah, and and one follow up on on card mark, you had mentioned in your prepared remarks about how we knew that we would get um, the, the, the the bounce in, in card losses, but you mentioned generically that card losses would still remain pretty low. Any any way of helping us kind of understand just how you expect Card losses to project overall. Uh,
3: Yeah, let me let me mention a couple things on that. So, so one is, um, you know, let's take it in in pieces. So, Latin America, you know, on the chart in slide ten, big jump in the in the quarter, almost eleven percent of NCLs. Uh, But again, that is a byproduct of um, you know customers coming off of the relief program in the third quarter. And as we look at the delinquency um, buckets, we're not seeing um, uh, meaningful signs of of increases in those buckets. And that gives us, you know, comfort in the case of Latin America that we've reached the peak there. Um, Similarly, for other regions, there are no signs in the delinquency bucket to suggest that we're going to see big increases in our NCLs. And, in fact, in North America, what you heard me say is that we likely would not see that until – You know, late in 2022. And so it's the it's the payment rates that we're seeing. It's the um, the the low activity as it relates to the delinquency buckets. It's obviously the impact of stimulus playing through all of that that give us, you know, some comfort at this stage that we're not you know, we're not likely to see a pop in NCL, certainly in, in 2021.
0: Your next question is from the line of Brian klein Hensel with KBW.
5: Hey, good morning. Um, so, yeah, two questions. Maybe first on the corporate lending. Um, you know, balances there were down 30% year on year. I'm just trying to get a sense of how much of that is driven by client demand versus your overall risk appetite. Maybe it's just trying to see if you get more risk appetite that those loan balances could come back sooner
3: yeah I mean look you know as as you know um you know we're we're managing through this this crisis, but if you look back to um you know early last year and uh, the second quarter last year, this was about ensuring that um, clients had an appropriate level of of liquidity um and uh, and that that has continued to happen as you see in our deposit growth, as you heard others mention as you see monetary action there they our corporate clients um, have lots of liquidity by and large. And they they have a, you know, many of the clients we serve have the option of how they want to access the market for that liquidity. Uh, and you saw that in some of the ECM, DCM activity through the balance of last year, and even some of it continuing. So long-winded way of saying it is, is—it is this is a client-driven business. This is about client demand. And so its it's not a a question of risk appetite, risk appetite is always important. We operate inside of our risk appetite framework always, um, but the dynamic that you're seeing here is about
5: client demand. Okay. And the second question on cards. Um, and I heard you desire to grow new card accounts. Um, can you maybe just you know go into a little bit deeper on the strategy behind that? Is it more going back to promotional balances and opening up that buck again, or how are you going to grow those new card accounts? Thanks?
3: Yeah, you know, again, the, the, the card um dynamic here is about um ensuring that we get, you know, the timing right as it relates to market reentry. Right. And so obviously coming into this, we wanted to be very thoughtful about how we managed our risk. Um and we tightened risk um you know, risk criteria in order to ensure that we could man we would manage responsibly through um, this pandemic. And now as we sit here and see all the signs of recovery that you've heard us mention, um, it's about a responsible reopening, right? And and ensuring that, um, you know, we're targeting, you know, the customers that, that we, um, you know, that we want longer term, the existing customers that we're opening, you know, line availability to them, where that makes sense in the case of you know our retail services that we are, you know, pursuing. You know, new account acquisitions both there as well as in branded cards. So it's about that reentry strategy, um, and consistent with, you know, the target market customer that you you've heard us describe before, which tends to be, you know, of a higher quality.
0: Your next question is from the line of Chris Katowski with Oppenheimer.
7: Uh, yeah, good morning, and thank you. Uh, my question is on the uh, exit markets, and in particular on the you know markets in the Pacific Rim, are there operational linkages between the operations in all those countries that would make those companies better to sell as a unit to one of the pan-national companies, or is it very modular and could be pulled apart and each country sold to the highest bidder? And then secondly, I was wondering also, uh do the do you, do the city branded cards go with these dispositions or do you maintain that separately and continue to to try to solicit and grow grow the card
4: base
2: um hey there chris so in terms of uh the the exit markets i'd say it's probably a tad early to speculate on the buyers um you know, these are these are fabulous franchises Um, And, you know, we've got really tremendous talent, tremendous uh, capabilities there um, in the individual markets, and so, you know, we expect it to get uh, a lot of interest, but as to who and what, I'm certainly not going to speculate yet. when you ask about operational linkages i mean this is something as mark said he and i have gone through quite a few divestitures in different geographies um and you know there are, uh, we're we are well skilled at how to make sure that we can we can separate out the consumer franchises and then invest in the capabilities for the uh for the icg businesses it's not been a problem in any of the divestitures that we've done, uh, which, are, which were many, I think it was about 11 or 12 across Latin America and, and others before. So um, our, our teams are good at this. It's, it's not going to be an issue. Um, and, in fact, it will enable us, as we said, to target our investments more into the, the institutional um, platforms and, and wealth in the hubs, as we talked about. Um, and then in terms of branded cards, um, um, you know, do, do, brand, do branded cards go as part of the sale? Yes, yep. it's a very yep. simple answer yep. to that one. Yep. Um, transaction services, of course, remains an important part of uh, the franchises in, in these certain 13 geographies, and so you know our capabilities in commercial cards and our um, you know our capabilities in payments, et cetera, for the GTS side of the business, you know, remain intact and and will will be invested in.
0: Your next question is from the line of Gerard Cassidy with RBC.
10: Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Mark. Good morning.
2: Good morning.
10: Mark, can you share with us, you know, many of us are trying to take a look at what your bank and your peers will look like when we get back to some sort of normalcy, you know, we're beyond the pandemic. And one of the areas of focus is loan loss reserves. Since as you and your peers said, you built them up dramatically. Now you're drawing them down, of course. Can you share with us? I think if I recall back on day one, January 20, you know when the new Cecil rules came into place, your loan loss reserve to loans was about 2.6%, and I think today it's about 3.3. Can you give us some color of? Directionally, do you think you could get there? I know there's a lot of moving parts and change of mix of loans and different economic outlooks, but the economy looks a heck of a lot better in the next 12 months than it did, you know, pre-pandemic and when you guys all did the day one reserves. And that was, of course, assuming we didn't know the pandemic was coming back then, of course.
3: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a really tough question to answer because there's so many moving pieces that that come into play here. Um, you know, so while we sit at three point point three percent as you pointed out, um you know, the the macro environment continues to improve. Uh, this is based on an outlook and as those economic variables change, uh whether it be US unemployment or GDP, but also as our balances change, so as we continue to, to re enter Uh, the market, as I kind of suggested in my other response, we're going to start growing balances and we're going to start, uh, and that's going to impact the mix of balances that we have. And so all of those factors on top of, in our case, you know, how the probability and severity of a downside continues to morph um, become important considerations in not only answering your question, um, but also how we think about future reserve releases. And so, I'm not trying to dodge your question at all, but it is it is a question that will be a kind of a byproduct of how we get to some sense of normalcy and how the portfolio continues to evolve.
10: Got it. No, the, completely understood. And, and Jane, I, I may have missed this, but um, – I could obviously sense the excitement in your voice about the new, you know, refresh on the strategy. How long, if you had to sit back, is this a three, five-year project? Any idea of the how long it will take to get City to the place where you want it to, you know, to go to?
2: Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, we're, what we're what we're looking at as we do the strategy refresh work is looking with a long-term perspective for the firm. Um, I I don't think it takes us um, a long time to complete the strategy refresh work, and we'll be looking forward to sharing that with everybody um, as we go along, as we said, um, and uh, we we get on with execution as soon as it makes sense. So um, I don't don't honestly know as a former consultant as to whether you're ever done with strategy. Um, This world is highly dynamic. Um, it's, uh, it, it's a fascinating world. I think part of the excitement is I'm excited about the franchise. I am excited about the prospects of the firm. I'm also realistic we've got quite a bit of work to do. Um, and we're very, Mark and I are very clear on what our priorities are. So um, I, I don't think it's going to take us very long to come back to everybody with the, with the clearer view of, of where we're going. I'm looking forward to doing so. Um, and more than anything, looking forward to getting on with it. Um, and I don't, I don't yes. think you're ever done. <laughs>
3: yeah. I can, I can assure you, Gerard, that Jane is moving all of us with a sense of urgency, and that's the, the, that's the right focus that we should have on this strategy refresh. But Jane, you're absolutely right. Strategy doesn't, doesn't just stop, right? So, well said.
0: Your final question is from the line of Vivek Janaja with the J.P. Morgan.
11: Hi, Jane. Hi, Mark. Uh, Thanks for taking my question. Um, Jane, I wanted to get, understand from you, so you've gone through these exits that you've talked about in Latin America, and now you're doing in the consumer bank and that you've announced for Asia now. What do you see as the differences in your consumer franchise in Asia uh, versus Latin America? And uh, pointedly, you know the investment sales what is that as a percentage of revenue for instance in your asia consumer bank versus latin market that's a little se- second question uh, you know detail on that um and will that will those revenues also go away so so two different questions one a little higher level but but tied to it is this whole investment sales and what do you see that and and implications for your because what i'm trying to get is a sense of implications for your private banking uh, revenues which I guess are different than this investment sales revenue that shows up in the yeah,
2: yeah. consumer bank. Yeah, and I, I think um it the differences between our Asia consumer franchises and um and Latin America. Latin America, let's be clear, is is our franchise in City Banamex only today. Um and uh you know that's that's a single geography with about twenty percent market share um and you know a full a and is a full offering to the consumer um as opposed to our um franchises in Asia that were um a bit of smaller. They're excellent franchises. As you know, they've got a good brand name. They've got really they've got uh, you know, terrific card franchises and, and an affluent client base, but they, they haven't had the same scale that we have in Mexico. So I do view them as um as rather different. Um and in terms of, you know, what are the ramifications, I guess the question you're asking is what's the ramification of the um of the divestures for this um for our wealth business in Asia? Um if you look at the individual Asian markets, um the domestic capital markets are, are not that well developed. And so the uh the offshore markets in um in a Hong Kong and Singapore, and indeed in the Middle East and in the States and in, uh, you know, London and, and the like, become very important um, you know, markets. Um, so the, the onshore wealth um, opportunity is usually massively dwarfed by um, the offshore wealth opportunity, and that's where you know we feel we're, we're best placed, um, you know, to focus our attention and resources. Um, what I would also say, though, is I. I one of the advantages for Citi is we're not just an investment sales proposition, um, that we also do have the deposit franchise, the card franchise. We have the capital market platform for sure. We've got the ability to offer our clients tremendous managed investments, the content that we're able to offer thanks to our ICG franchise, and um, it, it's really best in class. I know it's quite extraordinary in the asset allocation advice. So this is really a, the, the capabilities we can provide. Um, the uh, the client is, is very well diversified um, you know, from lending, banking, um, as well as the investment and the managed investment capital market revenues that you see. Um so I don't just think of this as investment sales. You know, this is this is something that we're able to offer um, that's much much more broad in those uh, wealth centre hubs, um, and uh, the offshore um, is far greater than the onshore opportunity in those thirteen markets. And we'll get, we'll, you'll get more guidance on this as we go forward, as Mark said, as, and as Jim fleshes out the, the strategy and the plan that we've got. So you can expect to get some more details.
0: There are no further questions. I will turn the call back over to management for any closing remarks.
1: Thank you all for joining today. Please feel free to reach out to Investor Relations if you have any follow-up questions. Thank you again and have a nice day.
0: This concludes the first quarter 2021 earnings call. Thank you for your participation.